All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Good morning. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee, where the Kabbalah, where the coffee is strong and the Kabbalah is stronger. Nice. That's how we like it. Now, the bumper sticker. Okay, good. So we got a great class today. We got a great discussion. Uh, first of all, let's begin with a thank you. Thank you to Erica for sponsoring today's breakfast. Thank you. Thank you. The, they tell a story about an old Jewish woman who had a pretzel stand on the street somewhere in wherever. Wherever. Huh? Gesundheit. Oh, pretzel. <laughs> like, how did I miss that in like, social studies? Okay. And so she sold pretzels, 25 cents a pretzel. And there was a man every single day who would come by and he would walk by her stand and give her a quarter. And she would give him a pretzel, and he would say, no, no, thank you, I don't need the pretzel, I'm just going to close that door. And he would offer, she would offer him a pretzel, and she, he would never take the pretzel. Close the door. And this, this went on for years. Day after day, every day, he comes by, he gives her a quarter, and doesn't take a pretzel. Until one day he comes by, and she's, he gives her, gives her a quarter... And she says, um, Sir, I, I have to tell you, the price went up to 35 cents. <laughs> so in, uh, in Jewish, we call that chutzpah. <laughs> but anyway, look, uh, inflation is inflation. What are you going to do? It goes up, price goes up, price goes up. All right, if you want to know where we're up to, what the connection is, we can find the connection at some point. I'll, I'll leave that up to you. We're going to have to get the creative juices flowing. Uh, but we are up to page 28 in the book. If you don't have a book and wish to have a copy, i got copies right here. Let's pass these down. Please pass. Please pass down. Alright, page 28. Let's regroup. I, I was missing last week, missing an action. So let's, uh, let's just all get back on the same page and kind of refresh our memory of what we're up to and what we've been doing. Good morning, good morning. Uh, okay, we got you in the hot seat, right here. Hey. Okay, what we've been talking about is understanding uh, the spiritual source of the feminine energy, which generally is personified by, uh, uh, by women. What I'll tell you is like this. You know, we know that uh, Gray wrote the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Kabbalah also has a take on this. Men are from Zah, women are from Malchus, Malchut. What that means, we're going to get to at the end of the book. But that's what we're journeying toward. We're journeying toward understanding where is the feminine energy? Where does it come from? What does it mean? What does it signify? What, what gifts do, does the feminine energy have that the masculine energy just does not have? And the context in which we're discussing this, the backdrop... The story that we're using as a, as, in a sense, as a springboard toward, toward this discussion is the story of the sin of the golden calf. Because here we saw a sharp divide between how the Jewish men reacted and how the Jewish women reacted. Whereas the men panicked in the, uh, in the context of, the, of, the, of Moses being missing after the 40 days on the mountain, and, Mo, and, the, and the, the men called for creating a golden calf, the women, thank you, the women we see completely did not participate in that. 
not one woman was involved in the sin of the golden calf. Not one woman was unfaithful to God in a sense. Not one woman doubted that Moses would indeed return and questioned, uh, questioned her faith in God and in Moses' uh, Moses' return. Whereas the men did. And so to understand this, to understand why it was that the, 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 the reaction was different, so different between the men and the women, we need to understand really what is at the source of idolatry. What, what, what causes a person in the first place to turn away from God? What, what drives a person to doubt God's presence, to doubt the ability of God? In other words, what causes a person to create a golden calf? Whether it's literally a golden calf, whether it's figuratively a golden calf, whether it's golden calves, whether it's what, whatever. What causes a person to move away from pure monotheism, pure belief in God, pure belief in Hashem, and move into a space of idolatry. That's what we've been discussing. And the general notion, which we've established the last two times that we met, in other words, two weeks ago and three weeks ago, the general notion is, the way we've, we've, we've explained it, um, you got one right over here. It's, it's trailing you. <laughs> the general idea that we've, that we've expressed, do you have a book? Yeah, no, we got sure. We got plenty. Is that humankind, to quote Svi Freeman, that philosophers were only trying to be nice to God by banishing God to the heavens and saying that God can't be involved. It just doesn't make sense that God should be involved in such an ugly place. The philosophers, the original philosophers, this is before Greece. This is the original philosophers in the times of, of the, the children and grandchildren of Adam. The f original philosophers felt that it, 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 there is no way, of course God exists, but does God get involved in the nitty gritty of creation? Does God get involved in everything that's happening and every detail and every nuance and every, everything that happens on earth? Of course not. It's ludicrous to think. God is too great to get involved, to get mired in such ugliness as the physical world that we know. There's no way that God... So they were tr in trying to be nice to God, they said God is removed from the world. God can't be part of this world and this reality. God cannot be hands-on and care what happens. Divine providence, hashkacha pratis, the idea of detailed, a detailed... Um, how do they translate it here? A detailed supervision doesn't exist. That God should have a detailed supervision of what's going on in the world doesn't make sense. In the spiritual worlds, God is there. But in the physical domain of, 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 of here and now, there's no way. And what we did last time we, we, we met together, which was two weeks ago, we kind of traced this based on Maimonides' uh, introduction to the laws of, uh, of idol worship, or the prohibition against idol worship. Where Maimonides traces this mistake, um, as we just did. He says the mistake was that, he doesn't use the words they were trying to be nice to God, but the idea is that people, human, the human beings, made a mistake and they said that God put certain powers, stars, constellations in charge. And therefore it makes sense to acknowledge them. Once we acknowledge something other than God, then the door is open to full-blown idolatry. Right? Once it's not about God ruling everything. Once it's about, well, the sun has power. 
And the moon has power, the tides and everything, right? The stars have power, astrology, etc. Once we attribute power to other forces, at that point, it's a quick jump to saying that those forces have their own autonomy and maybe, maybe they're God's as well. Instead of being in God's employ, God's employees, doing certain things, maybe, they have, maybe they're also mini-gods. And so from there, idolatry is, uh, uh, springs up. We then discussed, there's a reason why I'm laying all this out again. Then we discussed, where does this come from, psychologically? And we, we traced it to the idea of das, the idea of trying to feel, trying to know, trying to experience on one's own. We said that before the sin of Adam and Eve, there was no self-consciousness. People did not feel themselves. People were not self-aware. It's like what athletes will call being in the zone. You're not thinking about shooting the free throw. right? You're at the line, game's on the line. right? You, you release it and it goes in. You're not even thinking about it. If you think about it, then you're not in it. The moment you're thinking about it and you step out of the experience and you're looking at yourself and saying, look, here I am, shooting the free throw with the game on the line. There's a basketball. We don't usually do basketball. Did I throw everyone off? We don't usually do basketball. A simple reason. Does anybody know why we don't usually... This is off the topic for a second. Does anybody know why we don't usually do basketball analogies? Jesus don't play basketball. Wait a minute. Now, true to a certain extent, but, but specifically... I grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh. And what's with Pittsburgh? There's no basketball. There's no professional basketball team. Ah, I was waiting for an ah, like an eye opener. Ah. Okay, good. Fine. Revelation. Now you know the rest of the story. So, basketball analogy. So, the moment the, the, the individual steps outside of the experience and starts noticing, well, that's me on the line. The game is on the line. And all the fans are cheering or jeering or whatever's going on. Once you're in that space, you're probably going to miss the shot. It's, or it's already got to your head. You're not in the experience anymore. You're looking at you're analyzing the experience. It's like being in a relationship and you're already analyzing, where's, it, where's this going? Where's it going? I don't just be in the relationship. Sometimes you also have to analyze where it's going. I'm not saying you never have to analyze. But, but in the moment, right? Are you in the moment? Are you thinking about the moment? Are you outside the moment? Right? Are you in the zone or you're out of the zone? So this was, this was the critical error of the sin of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. The idea was knowledge, that they wanted knowledge. Adam and Eve wanted experience, they wanted knowledge, they wanted to feel. I want to feel. Ah, so now there's I. All right? If they didn't already connect with an I, how did they... Because there was a potential. So, okay, so last time we discussed this, the trick is the serpent... The serpent, they didn't have a Yetzirah, a negative inclination, or an ego that's like that inside, but it was outside, but they even inside they had the potential to succumbing to an outside influence. It's a little bit tricky how we explain it. But obviously there was a susceptibility to this. So even though they had, they were, ju- they were just being, they had the potential to not just being, but being conscious of being. The difference between a child and an adult. A child playing is not conscious. An adult, right, 
When you're a child and you're happy and you dance, you're not thinking about it. When you're an adult and you dance at a wedding, maybe you start thinking, well, who's looking at me? Am I dancing? Right? You start like measuring your steps and are you in the experience anymore? You're not in the experience. But that you're trying to be sober at the wedding. There's always sober. So, right? You're dancing at the wedding. Are you dancing at the wedding? Or are you thinking about myself dancing at the wedding? Then you're not dancing. Then you're not in the experience. Then you're not feeling the joy. Which is why we explained last time, and we're leading up to a certain point here, which is why Adam and Eve, it says in the Torah, before the sin, they, did, they were not wearing clothes and they were not ashamed. Because they weren't, they weren't conscious of self. And after the sin, they were ashamed. Because they were conscious of self. Good. So I want to tell you a tale of three generations. Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Because what we find in Zohar and Kabbalah is that there's a very interesting parallel or thread that is drawn between these three individuals. Because as we know in the story of Noah, when Noah emerges from the ark after the flood, destroys all life on earth, except save for that which is in the ark. After Noah emerges from the ark into a new world, to a clean, a, a freshly cleansed world, what is the first thing we, we... Well, not the first thing, but what is one of the first things the Torah tells us that Noah did? After the flood? Mm-hmm. After he emerges back on earth. He makes sacrifices. He makes sacrifices. That's the first thing. First thing is he offers sacrifices. Then he pens of And then what happens? And he gets drunk. Why? Okay. So hold on. Hold on. This is very important. What happens is, after the flood... Noah plants a vineyard and he drinks and he gets drunk and he and he removes his clothes. And his son finds him and he reports to the other brothers and it's a whole thing. And the, and the son Ham is cursed because he pointed out the nakedness of his father. But that's, that's irrelevant for a second. I want to focus on the idea of drinking. Right? He, drink, he plants a vineyard and he drinks right after he gets off the air. What happened? What happened? Says the Zohar. Kabbalah teaches as follows. The Zohar means radiance, but it's a book. Zohar literally means radiance. The book book of the Zohar, it's several volumes, and it is the primary Kabbalistic work authored about 2,000 years ago by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Zohar says that there's a connection. The reason why Noah planted the vineyard and he drank is because he was trying to fix the mistake of Adam and Eve. He was trying to correct the error of Adam and Eve. That's what the Zohar says. How? Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was their sin. The Talmud, and this is, uh, we're going to talk about this in, in this week's course, Fascinating Fast, which we'll talk about later. What did they eat, Adam and Eve? What did they eat specifically? Sounds like they ate an apple, right? That's what everyone says. Wasn't an apple. Huh? They drank wine according to one opinion in the Talmud. It was a vineyard, it was uh, vines, and Eve squeezed them and produced wine, and they both drank. Says the Zohar, and the Zohar cleaves to this interpretation. The Zohar says that Noah, in planting a vineyard and drinking, was trying to fix. What Adam and Eve had done by drinking. So how does that make any sense? 
No, it was not apples. That's a mis- that's a that's a it's a, a misconception. Hey, good morning. It's a misconception. Which, but it's there's three opinions in the Talmud. One is uh, and one of them is grapes and wine. So what happened? So they're trying to fix the error of Adam and Eve by drinking. How does that make any sense? Adam and Eve, their mistake was drinking. So we're going to fix it by drinking. Or Noah says, I'm going to fix it by drinking. How does that make any sense? And we already have the answer. We already have the answer. Because we just explained that the mistake of Adam and Eve was drinking in order to feel, to feel self. And Noah said that was the problem, feeling self. I'm going to drink to not feel self. And then I won't be. I'll shut myself off by drinking. This is how the Zohar explains what Noah wanted to do. Again, Adam and Eve, they drank in order to feel pleasure. In order to feel something. In order to feel the experience. They wanted to know what they were feeling. Not just to be in the experience, but to be conscious of the experience. That's why they drank. Noah says the problem is consciousness. The problem is awareness. So I'm going to drink myself into oblivion and get back to the place without clothes. You see what happened? To get back to the place of no clothes. That's why he takes off his clothes. Before innocence, meaning. I mean, not Right. He's innocence. trying to get to that space of, of innocence. Yeah. And he was wrong. He's trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. Trying to get back to the Garden of Eden through drinking. Through reversing what, use, utilizing the same tool that they used, Adam and Eve, for the opposite effect. Not to feel, but to, not to feel, but not to feel. To not feel. How can you drink to be more aware of yourself? Adam and Eve, they wanted the pleasure. They wanted to enjoy the fruit. It wasn't enough doing what God wanted and be just a seamless um, entity doing the right thing, they wanted to experience. When they drank, they didn't drink to the point of drunkenness. They drank to the point of sophistication. They drank, right? They were sipping. We don't. They didn't guzzle the wine. They weren't trying to get. They weren't trying to to lose their their consciousness. They were trying to gain consciousness, sophistication, right? Oh, I think we need to swirl it around a little bit more. They were trying to get to that space, right? We have to open it up by swirling it. I don't drink dry wine. I'm more of a sweet wine person, but that's just me. Anyway, right? You see what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? They were trying to drink. Their drinking was a sophistication. They wanted to feel. They wanted to taste. They wanted to enjoy. Noah says, that's the problem. The problem is self-awareness. Self-consciousness. So I'm going to drink to get out of that. Yeah. So is it similar to what we talk about when when you're eating just for pleasure as opposed to eating for a higher purpose? Is that kind of their drinking was a... It's, no, it's much more. It's more subtle than that. It's more subtle than that. It's the entire experience. Am I conscious of what I'm doing? In other words, am I aware of the experience, or am I just being in the experience? But how would they know that that was a sophisticated act if they hadn't participated in that act ever before? The fact that they wanted to experience it, they wanted das. This was the eight had das. That this was the tree of knowledge. Knowledge is experience, is feeling. 
That's what knowledge is in the way it's the, the, the energy is explained. Was, what they wanted was the experience, the consciousness of the experience. It wasn't enough to be in the experience. They wanted the awareness of the experience. Right? And that was the error. And so what they drink, it, it's almost irrelevant in a sense what they drank. The point is what they wanted. And that was accomplished through, through what they drank. But the point is that was the underlying point of the experience. Yeah. Isn't it important also that, that this was what was forbidden to them? They were told to not have that experience. And so they went right for that experience. That's for sure. That's for sure. That the, the sin was that they, did, they, they ate of something or they drank of something, they partook of something that was off, that was off limits. That's for sure the mistake. Now, why did they really want it? You could say because it, because it was off limits, so they wanted it. You could say that. Yeah, that's what you could say then. However, what we're saying is something, the way Kabbalah explains it, that might be the way psychology explains it. That forbidden fruit is sweeter or more attractive, right? Fine. But Kabbalah explains that what was the issue? The issue was they moved from a place of being completely in the experience to wanting to know the experience. To wanting to be able to experience the experience. That's a kind of a brave adult thing, I think. Not that it's necessary. No, we have to explain. You know, this is something. Okay. So, the, you, what, I think what you're asking is so, it, uh, are we really saying that the purity of a child or the innocence of a child is the ideal state we should never grow up? Does that really make sense? Are we meant to just be children, carefree, and not. Conscious of what's going on? Is that better? So I, before I assess, I don't want to assess a value, better or worse. I just want to tell you what happened. Because you could really ask this, the, the question the same way, in just different words. Were they supposed to sin or not? That's really the question. You can't say they were supposed to sin, but can you say that the sin was, at least from a Kabbalistic perspective, a terribly negative thing? On one level, yes. On one level... It spawned uh, much, much greater growth than could ever be achieved by the innocence and the purity of the, of the Garden of Eden without that sin. So, I don't want to say well, this is better or worse. I just want to say what happened. What did they want? They wanted the consciousness. They wanted to feel the experience. Not just to, be in the, not just to have the experience, not just to be in the experience, but to feel the experience. Why? Why? Why did they want to feel it? Oh, why wine? I mean, you'd have to ferment it. As, as they ask in Atlanta, why not? Why not? No, no, no reference. Uh, yeah, okay, there you go. All right, so in other words, what, what, why not wine? Because that's so complicated. Why is it complicated? Well, you have to ferment for grapes. Everything happened faster than the Garden it's quick for self-fermenting grapes. Squeeze it, ferments, why, done. Why? why do they even want? I mean, if they were. I know, right? So your question is, why do they want that? Yeah, if they didn't, how do you want? How do you know to want something? Because the because the serpent. So again, this is the subtlety that we're trying to work with. That I, the serpent introduces the concept of, don't you want to try it? Don't you want to know what it what it feels like to be conscious of feeling something? 
until now you're not thinking about yourself. Don't you want don't you want to have the satisfaction of knowing what you're feeling or thinking about what you're feeling or experiencing what you're feeling instead of just feeling it, just being in the experience? Was this not the serpent was dealing only with ego? Wasn't dealing with Adam and Correct. Correct. Eve then passed along the info. Is this Oh, so the question is what? Well, good. No, so the question was asked. Uh, good. We we addressed this question a few weeks ago. So where do we see the feminine faith here? So again, that's what I said. It's not foolproof. It's not like there's never been a woman in history that had doubts about God. It's not what we're saying. We're saying the feminine energy lends itself to a certain type of faith, whereas the masculine energy lends itself to. Now, does that mean that it's foolproof along gender lines? Does that mean that no? Of course not. Does that mean that all men participate in the center of the golden calf? No. So, but yeah, you're right. You're right. It's Eve. Much later, chronologically. It's also much later, right? It's a, yeah. But anyway, the idea here. What is this? Who, who does the serpent represent? If God created heaven and earth and put Adam and Eve <coughs> in the Garden of Eden, where did the serpent come from? What is the representation? It represents the evil inclination. Yeah. But Straight up. Ah, oh, that's a good question. We've asked that before. The conclusion that we've come to, and again, this is after elaborate discussion, is because God wanted Adam and Eve to, on some level, to mess up. Why? To get higher. Because when you mess up and you fix it, you get you're stronger than than before you than before you started. So that's anyway. So here's the deal. I, I said there are three generations. So Adam's sin and Eve's sin, their mistake was wanting to feel. Wanting to have that feeling, wanting, in other words, I want to feel. I want to know what it's like. I want to know what it is to, the knowledge, the sophistication, the self-awareness. I don't want to just be, I want to be aware. I want to know. Noah says that was the problem. And that led to all the disasters of uh, why the world was destroyed in the first place. The flood. So let's undo that. Let's go to a place of no of unconsciousness. So I'm going to drink myself into oblivion. That's what Noah says. And that's also not correct. Because that's not fixing the problem. Drinking into a state of unconsciousness is not being in the experience. It might feel like it's being in the experience, but it's not. It's artificial. The answer comes in the next generation or the next hero of our story in the Torah, which is Abraham. Because there's, there's no con- there, there's self-consciousness, which is the sin. There's the unconsciousness of Noah with the drinking. And then there's the God-consciousness of Abraham. And that's what fixes the problem. It's the God-consciousness of Abraham that can fix the problem. And that's what, we're, that's what we've been working on for the past 4,000 years is getting into a space where we're more conscious of God and less conscious of ourselves. And it happens through study, it happens through doing a mitzvah, it happens through all of these things that pull us away a little bit outside of ourselves and a little bit closer to Hashem. It doesn't happen in any other way. And that's how we recapture, that's how we recapture the experience of Eden on a moment-by-moment basis. By making the right choices and by, by choosing God, by choosing a God consciousness. Now, with this in mind, I want to pass a. Uh, I want to pass out.
I want to pass out. I want to hand out. Not yet. Not yet. That's what Noah wanted to do. He wanted to pass out. And he did. And it wasn't right. Huh? That's why we have opaque cups. You have no idea. It looks like uh, Glenlivet, honestly, in here. but No, it's just tea. Alright, please, uh, please pass this down. Take and pass. Take and pass. I hope we have enough copies for everybody, uh, but if not, we can double up as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, can we go back to the garden? Just sure. Let's do uh, it. When you were talking about children, yeah. that's you know, sort of a, a common analogy uh, that, that they live in, you know, in, in, in their innocence. Right. And, and, and the, the whole thing about children leaving childhood is like losing their innocence. It's, it's kind of analogous to the garden. Exactly. Yeah. It's, usually, it's usually around sex. I mean, it's usually around, you know, learning the facts of life and learning that, you know, their parents did this horrible thing, you know, that I couldn't imagine. And, oh, I hope that that's not how it's being taught, but okay, yeah, all right. So anyway, uh, um, so the whole analogy about, about you know, Adam leaving the garden and losing their innocence, that seems to be replayed, you know, in this sort of absolutely, sure, absolutely. Now again, I I think it happens in more than one area, but I, I think the general notion is that kids in general, now a specific kid might be more conscious of something or not, of course, but the general notion is that as the younger we are, the less self-conscious, the less we're thinking about ourselves, we're more into it, we're more, and then as we get older, we become more. We become more up here. We live more in our heads. We become more analytical. We become more self-conscious. We become more self-aware. We criticize ourselves. We look at ourselves. We think about what others are thinking of us in this moment. Right. It's a, children seem to be happy when they're when they're innocent. They seem to be happy. Right. Now, so does that right? So, but again, the question that that I don't want to address is: Well, is it healthy to stay a child? Yes and no. And it's not. In other words, there is a value in 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 getting older as well. And in having that das, and in, in developing that knowledge and that awareness, there's value in that. But th- you have to understand, see, I, I always say this, the subtlety is, as human beings, we like to, black and white, good or bad, right? we, like to, we like to peg things. So the moment we say that there's a value and a virtue and innocence, it sounds like what we're saying is, that's good, and when you get older, it's bad. That's not what I'm saying. There's value. Subtlety means that there's value here. There's another value there that we're not addressing. Of course there's a value in sophistication. Of course there's a value in getting older and becoming aware and knowing what, and, and having, and putting on clothes. Of course there's value there. But we have to, but we're, we're talking about the value of, uh, of the innocence right now. So again, we're not, it's not coming to the exclusion of anything. It's just, we're just pointing out one thing. And again, if you want to just keep, keep an image in your mind, the difference between Dancing like you mean it, and dancing at a wedding, let's say, and dancing while thinking about... This is a famous story, King David. It says in the, in the Book of Prophets, King David was dancing. He was celebrating. Anybody know this story? Why was he celebrating? He was dancing before the ark. Dancing before the ark. The ark was being returned. And wait, so right, the, 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 the ark was being returned to its place... And, and he was dancing. And he was dancing like nobody's business. Dancing with the ark. Stars. Dan- right? Huh? He was dancing. And so his wife said, later or then, she said, it's not befitting. You're a king. What are you dancing with a band in? And he's... Huh? 
What is that? She said you were showing it yourself. Yeah, well, you're you're not you're not it's it's you're not kingly. And so here's this question: Are you thinking about it? Or are you just dancing? Are you feeling the joy that when you feel the joy and the joy moves you, right? And the moment moves you, and you're dancing. Should you then stop and think, well? Should I be dancing? Who's going to be looking at me? Is it befitting a person of my stature? How should I dance? Before whom should I dance? Right? Are you thinking or are you just dancing? So his wife says, you've got to be conscious. And he says, I was in the experience. You want me to lose the experience? So then why am I dancing? Then I'm dancing because I figured out that I should be dancing. It's almost like feeling an emotion because you, f- you know that you should be feeling it, but you don't actually feel it. Which is something we've talked about before in, in various classes. Where I feel... Gratitude, I say thank you, not because I'm actually thankful, but because I know that in this social context I'm supposed to be saying thank you. Or I feel love and I say I love you because at this point in a relationship you're supposed to say I love you. So I don't feel the love necessarily, but I know that socially in the context I should be saying I love you, so I say I love you. In other words, am I dancing because I'm dancing or am I dancing because I figured out that I should be dancing because I'm conscious of myself? Yeah. It also to me um, you know, resonates this whole concept of choice and just separation in general. Like, as long as a child is in the experience and with their parents and doesn't see that they have a choice of acting in another way, they're innocent. It's like a, a unit. Um, you know, once you think that you have a choice and then go and make those choices, there's that separation. Oh, so I want to focus on that. What, what's the key once you realize that you have a choice? In other words, once you realize that there's some, that, there, that you have a choice. In other words, now there's you in the picture. Ah, that's what the serpent comes along and says. The serpent says, you have a choice. Right? Eve says, no, 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 the moment we touch, the moment we touch the tree, we're going to die. There's no choice. Says, no, no, you have a choice. Look, push her against the tree. She doesn't die. Of course you have a choice. That's the beginning of it. The beginning of it is the, is the when you start to think, well, wait a second. Right? All right, let's read this. What's so terrible about idolatry? This is a great article. A lot to talk about in this article. There's a ton to talk about. Alright? But we need to uh, we, we need to read this. We need to read this. Alright? David, I want to call on you. Yes. You ready? What's so terrible about idolatry? Why is Judaism so intolerant of idolatry? I don't mean massive temples or human sacrifices. What about a civilized idolatry? The privacy of his own home, with a job, a family, a mortgage, donates to the World Hunger Fund. Alright, that's the question. Now no one actually wrote this question. He wrote the question himself, the author C. Freeman. Uh, but here's uh, here's the answer. Yeah. There's there are many ways to answer this, but let's take a historical perspective. Historians agree that our current standard of ethics stems from the Jewish ethic. Yes, the Greeks gave us the natural sciences, philosophy, and art. The Romans gave us governmental structure and engineering. From the Persians, we have poetry and astronomy, and the Chinese paper, printing, gunpowder, acupuncture, and more philosophy, and so on. But the historical fact is that all cultures and all the other unmentioned cultures sustained and even glorified attitudes and behaviors that today we universally find abhorrent. Today, if you dispose of your unwanted infants, practice peder- pederasty. Uh, what is that? I'm not sure. I guess we don't practice it. 
<laughs> if you did, you might know, right? <laughs> no one should admit that they know. Okay, go, yeah. Abraham's predecessors had also known that the one God, creator of heaven and earth, 
but they understood God as far too sublime and transcendent to be occupied with this mundane world of creatures, and began to chip away at his providence, asserting that lesser powers of his appointment had been granted a share of dominion. They went so far as to build temples, where they focused their minds upon the dynamics of these forces, attaining spiritual heights and mystic power. Eventually, wisdom gave way to charlatanism, as priests told the masses that a certain star or god or goddess had spoken to them, commanding them to serve him or her in a certain fashion. Rulers found that a good mix of secret knowledge and convenient mythology could be an instrument of power over the populace, that by controlling the flow of knowledge, they were able to hold the people in awe of the This is where Abraham descended. He sought to the established order with its, its hierarchy of knowledge and power and reasoned it to be the source of all evil. And he sought to the root of it. As long as God was up there and everything else was seen as lying on a descending plane further and further removed from his domain, this evil would continue. Within such a paradigm, human life loses its essential value. You as an individual no longer exist. All that matters is how high you are upon the scale. Not only human rights, but also the advantage of technology is hindered by the need of the ruling class to keep the masses working. All progress is to further empower the powerful. Public health, welfare, and education are absurdities. So Abraham challenged that hierarchy. He taught each person to call upon the name of the one God of the heavens and earth, who judges the deeds of all men equally from the highest king to the most lowly servant. By putting the original God back into the world, Abraham recreated the, quote, person, human who is of value just by human. Does that make sense so far? See what he's saying? In other words, ah, uh? okay. All right, continue. Paradigm: Ethics have no base to stand on. If you don't like what one god demands of you, you go find another god more to your taste, or you work around these gods, tricking or bribing them as they themselves are want to do with one another. After all, none of them is supreme, none is all powerful. Therefore, anything can be justified. So Abraham smashed the idols. Once there is only one God who supervises all things, morality is no longer relevant. All ethics are determined not by the flux of social convenience, but by his intransient standard. Without Abraham's base to ethics, society has no stability. Any institution could be shaken to the ground by changing circumstance at the whims of human desire. In ancient Greece, the institution of marriage bordered on collapse due to their gender preference, while in it was gradually dismantled by promiscuity. The institutions that should have nurtured human spirituality in many societies became corrupted into bloody origins and worship of the senses. In many instances, such as in the Far East, poverty was allowed to grow to unmanageable proportions, while a select few amassed an immense concentration of power, all due to the void of social responsibility. In our day and age, with the origin of species attributed to the mystical gods of chance and natural law, the most horrid crimes against humanity were committed and the very biosphere is now threatened. Only once the building blocks of society stand upon the solid ground of the one who creates everything in the first place can a sustainable society develop. So the second to last sentence over there. In our day and age, with the origin of species attributed to the missile gods of chance and natural law, the most horrible crimes against humanity, talking about the Holocaust, the very biosphere is now threatened. Not taking care of the world. If it's everything's random. Okay, continue. Truth be told, Abraham's message also began to perish in time. It wasn't until monotheistic providence transcended the realm of ideas and became a real-life experience of the people that was truly able to stick. And this is just what happened at Mount Sinai, when Abraham's descendants came face-to-face -face with marching orders directly from above. The concept of a mitzvah entered the world, something we do because God wants it done. And that basis has proved eternally resilient. As for the rest of the nations, as the Rambam writes, 
They also they were also commanded at Mount Sinai to keep the seven mitzvahs, mitzvahs of Adam and Noah, which include the prohibition against polytheism. Today we are witnessing the most dramatic results of Abraham's strategy and action, our progress in the last 500 years to the point of the current empowerment of the consumer with technology and information only became possible through the rise of this epic. In a polytheistic world, this could never have occurred. It was only once the people of Europe began actually reading the Bible and discussing what it had to say to them that the concept of human rights, social responsibility, the value of life, and eventually the idea of world peace exceed civilization's progress. And it is only such a world that could have developed public education, healthcare, old age pension, telephones, fax machines, personal computers, the internet, environmental design, and nuclear disarmament. We are too much a part of the flow to recognize us. To recognize this, the blanket of darkness that endures, fighting to its last breath, preoccupies our minds. But if we could travel back in time and describe to the Jews of past ages the world we have today, a world that values life, world peace, individual rights, freedom of expression, literacy, knowledge, and compassion for those who have less, that Jew would undoubtedly respond, wide-eyed, you mean it is the days of Moshiach, uh, a time that began when a young boy in Samaria took a hammer and smashed the idols in his father's house. That's the article. Wow. Okay, a lot, of, a lot of powerful ideas. And what I want to point out here from all of this is the idea, look, there's, there's a, lot to, a lot to digest, a lot to, a lot to take in. But I think, I think what I take from this, what I want to focus on are two points. Number one, as follows. When you put God, as we've explained the mistake of the original people, when you put God, when you remove God from the world and you say, well, God's not involved in the world. Right? There, are other, there are other intermediaries that are involved that have the power. What you're setting up is a system of hierarchy for human beings as well. What you're doing is you're saying that the higher you are, right, the more star-like you are, the more knowledge of the stars you are, the closer to the sun you are, right? the more you walk on the surface of the sun or the moon, I don't mean literally, but the closer you are to the heavens the better you are, the holier you are, and therefore you can wield power over those that don't have the knowledge, that don't have the information, that are just of the low, of lowly, of, of lowly, low, quote-unquote lowly creatures. Whereas when you embrace the idea of Judaism, of monotheism, that God did not abandon the world to any other forces, that God is intimately involved in everything that occurs, what you're saying is to the individual, you have a personal relationship with God. You don't need to go to anybody else to have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with God because God has a relationship with you. And suddenly you removed this hierarchy and this power and this corruption that plagues humankind. That plagued humankind for thousands of years. And that justified killings and abuse and torture and withholding information and knowledge and, 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 and sharing public, uh, uh, public benefits. That's number one. Number two, what was number two? Okay, I think we can focus on number one. I think this is a major idea. The major idea, what Abraham brings to the world, and when I say Abraham, I mean this, this, this revival of, uh, of the original monotheistic ethic. What Abraham brings to the world is, in a sense, it's almost like what the Baal Shem Tov brought to the world years later. Not, not a few hundred years ago. It's almost like the Jewish world also began to parallel this structure. Where the more Talmud you knew, 
right? The holier you were. Right? The more scholarship you attained, so you could daven in the, in the fancy shul, in the fancy synagogue. If you didn't, if you were a simple farmer, if you were a laborer, you had your own shul. You couldn't daven in the, in the big shul, you couldn't daven in the regular shul. You had to have your separate the prayer service, separate, uh, separate prayers. Bashatav came around and said, What is this? This is not Judaism. This is not Judaism. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, we lost our soul. And he said, you may be studying Talmud all day, but it's dead. Because where's the neshama, where's the soul? God is connected with the simple individual. That, that, that simply prays and says words of Psalms and may not understand what they're saying. But just does it and does a mitzvah because it's the right thing to do. Because that's what they were taught. and that's, God has a relation with that person. And so what the Baal Shem Tov did was, in a sense, bring this, re- revitalize this as well. This movement of breaking down the hierarchy, breaking down the borders. And what we take from this is, regarding monotheism, the danger of relegating God to the heavens. Saying that God is not involved in the world. If God's not involved in the world, so then who's involved in the world? The stars? The sun? You? Right? Who's, who's, the big, who's the head on show here? You? You get to make the calls. You tell me what's right and wrong. Wonderful. That's a, that's a terribly dangerous place where people are making up ethics, where human beings are saying what's right and wrong. That is a terribly dangerous world because human beings have historically come up with the wrong ethics, as we've seen. With regards to human beings, it's ethical to weed out the less desirables. You want a healthy society? You want a productive society? Well, these people aren't. So you've got to get rid of them. If you want a healthy society. This is what Germany said 60, 70 years ago. Right? You want a healthy society, a productive society. So you can't have these people. The infirm, the Jews, etc. You can't have them. This type of thinking also, as he said in the article, and I pointed out before, you don't have to care for the world. Because if we're all powerful, so then so we destroy the world. If you, be- if you bring God back into the world... Bring God back into the picture. God is not removed from the world. God is a reality. God is involved. Detailed providence, divine providence, detailed supervision, etc. So suddenly what happens is everything shifts. So now we have a greater responsibility. First of all, we have a, we have a connection. It doesn't have to go through anybody. In other words, the power is suddenly removed from people that say, well, I've got the information, I've got the knowledge, I've got the power. Who are you? i got a relationship with God. And I know what God wants. It's in the Torah. 613 mitzvot or 7 mitzvot. I know what God wants. And number two, there's, there are intransient uh, ethics and values that stand the test of time. So, this becomes a very important uh, consideration when understanding the danger of those original generations that moved away from monotheism. We said in Adam's time, everyone knew about God. And then what happened? They started saying, well, God is too far removed. Let's understand the danger of that, of such thinking. Yeah. Earlier you were talking about why would God be meddling in the physical world. So now I'm I'm confused. I was saying that that's what the philosophers said. Oh. And that's not true. Oh, I see. In other words, they can't in their human mind, but again, why is this? First of all, because maybe it was an innocent mistake, but it's also not so innocent mistake. But then my other question is, if God is... No, no, one second, one second. Yeah, let, me, let me explain what I'm saying. Okay. 
In other words, it's an innocent mistake to say, well, how could a great God be involved in such a lowly place? That might be innocent. But then you replace it with, so then who's in charge? I'm in charge. And I'll tell you, I'll control the flow of information, and I'll tell you how to be, right? I'll tell you how to do it. So now is it innocent, or is it, or is it a devious plot here for power? Right? That's devious. It's not innocent anymore. Right? You're saying is, no, God can't be involved. God is not involved. So who's the power? Oh, that would be me. As I say, Yashur Koach, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for helping here. Right? Yeah. So, why did it take so long for God to reveal the plan so that the people could understand? So, you, very good question. I'll tell you, it's this... I'll tell you, I have a few different, let's take it from a few different angles. Number one, and at the beginning everyone knew. So nothing had to be revealed. Everyone knew the truth. Adam knew the truth. Adam knew where he came from. There was no question there was a creator. Right? There was a communication with the creator. Adam communicated with God. There was, no, there was not a question about it. So the, really the question should be, how did it get lost? And that we already explained, how did that information get lost? Now why does God revive it only you know, 2,000 years later with a revelation? Not necessarily, but it's like, does God... Does God you, there's also... You, know, you could say that there had to be, the foundation had to be laid for us to, to achieve this on our own as well. In other words, if God is just giving it to us, it doesn't have the same value. So when Abraham had to arise, who said, who, re, who recaptured this vision, and then he had to teach it to his descendants, and they had to go through hell in Egypt, and be forged with strength and determination, and then they were ready to get, to, to get the gift of Torah. That it should come so easy. Easy come, easy go. They had it easy the first time around, and they lost it. In other words, Adam and Adam got it the first time around, and a few generations later, it was gone. So if God comes along again and says, "Oh, here's another revelation. I exist," you know, it's gonna happen in a few generations. Who are you, right? So it had to. We had to prove, in a sense, and Egypt was a big was a proving ground, in a sense, where it was forged the metal of our people of staying strong despite adversity and holding on to it. And we've held on to it for three thousand years, even when we've been. Killed and, and persecuted and, 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 and expelled and exp- expelled, expelled, expelled. Yeah. Yeah. Slaughtered, Slaughtered burned, Expunded. everything. And we still and we're still holding on to it. And we're not and we're not going anywhere. How do you have it? And it it didn't happen when it was so easy. I'm saying is they lost it. The for, for the original generation, as we explained, Maimonides goes through the, the, the history. They lost it because they never earned it. You, you keep what you earn. You hold on to what you earn. What was happening with feminine faith? Like God sort of, God's presence sort of disappeared, or people right. connected with it. Right. What I'm saying is that feminine faith, there's, there's, it's not a magical, it's not a magical uh, thing. What, the point that we're going to bring out is that the feminine, that, that women or the feminine energy are more in tune with the truth. Does that mean that choices can't be made either way? So, in regard to these generations, um, you know, barbaric uh, in Rome, killing each other for sport, were no women in the stands cheering? I don't know. I have no idea. No, I don't want the movies to pick. Yeah, 
there are enough people who know the truth that, that somehow that that prevails and it's just it's interesting the world. Look, this right now we're not drawing it along the lines of, of men and women right now. We're going to get to a place, we're, we're going to Eventually, we're going to bring it back to that place and say, well, women have, have an ability, or the feminine energy has an ability to plug into that truth um, because of where their souls come from easier than men. Is it foolproof? It's not foolproof. So, I, I don't know if you have ancient civilizations of Greece and Rome where you find one way or the other. By the way, pedestry? No, it's an intimate relationship between an adult and an adolescent boy outside his immediate family. Is it just any child? It's pedophilia. It's probably, it sounds like pedophilia. It sounds like pedophilia. Yeah, it's the P. Yeah, the the P. The P. The P. D. Prefix kind of gave it away. Yeah. What you got? Just curious, and I'm not just even matters, but on the scale that we're talking from, conscious, yeah, unconscious to God, God conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Generationally, where are we now? Are we still in that third stage? Are we? So theoretically, we're in the third stage of God consciousness. In other words, the conscious, the awareness is there. The information is there. It's it's here in Torah. It's here in Kabbalah. It's it's ready. It's right for the picking. An individual can go through the journey themselves. Can replicate this journey. You know, starting when we're young, we can have that, you know, that that innocence of youth. Then we can perhaps pull away from the values that we're taught and, and do our own thing. And then maybe we can come back. So the individual can mirror the, the historical journey. In general, though, we're post-Sinai, we're post-Torah, which is a good thing. We're post-Abraham, which is a good thing. We can build on, we can build on, on all of the accomplishments that have been uh, achieved over the, in previous generations before us, right? So, yeah, we have the ability to tap into the God consciousness. No doubt, 100%. I also would, would imagine that during this whole time when people were straying, there were always seeds of... Yes. Of goodness, a hundred percent. That's what it says over here. Exactly. It says over here there were individuals. There was always there. Were always there. Even in Abraham's time, there were lone individuals who preached this to the disciples as a tradition from Adam through Methuselah, in the Hebrew, and Noah. In other words, there were individuals that had it, that knew it, that taught it, even on a limited level, but not as broadly as Abraham. So, with all of this background information, let's. Pick up the text, the bottom of 28. Let's pick up the text. Okay. All right? And we're going to read about, again, the mistake. The, 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 the caption here is the theological argument for idolatry, but really the origins of idolatry. Where does it come from? Maritza, you ready? This is what is meant. All the way at the bottom. This is what is meant by the verse... The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He gave to the children of man. Anybody know where that verse comes from? Psalm one fifteen. Some anybody familiar with the hallow prayer? Hashemayim shemayim la Hashem vehores nasam levnei adam. Heavens are for the Lord's heavens. Hashemayim the heavens shemayim la Hashem are for Hashem. Vehores in the earth nasam levnei adam is given to man. This is the mistake. What's the mistake? God is in the heavens, the earth. That's where we, that's our playground. That's our sandbox. All right, continue. The term heavens here does not refer to the physical heavens, but rather to their spiritual parallel, as in the sublime heavens. By the way, here he points out something interesting. When scripture in general, when we talk about the heavens, don't think we're talking about the sky. Right? We're not talking about the ozone layer. 
We're not talking about uh, where all the particles from the various satellites are. So you read that article recently? Like all this junk, space junk? That's not, we're not talking about space junk. The space junk is God's and the earth is ours. That's not what we're talking about. The heavens is a, a euphemism. It's not really, I guess, euphemism maybe is too strong. But it's, it, it's a reference to spiritual realms. When we say, he, even though heavens is a heavens aren't spiritual. Heavens, he, heaven is heaven. Heaven is a physical reality. But when we refer, to, oftentimes in scripture when it says heavens, it's not referring to the physical dimension of heavens. Heavens, it's referring to the spiritual concept of a heaven. It's a metaphor, exactly. Straight up. And he draws some, uh, he has some, some uh, proof text here. Similarly? Similarly, uh, the verse, for high as the heaven is above the earth, describes the qualitative distance between the spiritual and the physical planes. Just as the physical heaven seems to the naked eye as exalted and removed from the earth, which is the lowest thing, likewise, all of the spiritual entities, such as the angels and the spiritual worlds of Beriah, Jitsira and Asiya yep. are the lords who conduct them with detailed supervision. So again, and the truth is that sentence probably is not broken in the right place because it's it's explaining why it refers to it as heavens and then it moves into the interpretation of the verse. So it kind of combines two things here. The first issue is why are the spiritual realms referred to as heavens? Because it allows us to understand because it gives us context. Just like the physical heavens are so distant from the, from the physical earth, right? It's, it's not, right? It's distant. So too, the spiritual realms are distant from us. That's one point. And the second point is, and that's where God is in the spiritual realms. And that's where God is involved with detailed supervision. In other words, where is God? God's in the heavens. God's in the spiritual realms. God is involved with the angels. The angels are schmoozing with God. The angels are involved. He cares about the angels. He's telling them where to fly and where to, you know, fluff the clouds or whatever. Right? He's getting involved with the angels. But with us, in contrast... Continue. In contrast, due to the earth and all that is upon it, being the lowest creation, it would be degrading for him to pay attention to them with detailed supervision. And again, all of this is not the truth. All of this is the mistaken notion that leads to idolatry. Right? I just want to be clear. He's saying, again, he's not saying this is the truth. He's saying this is the, this is the mistaken notion. That God is only involved in the spiritual and with the physical. Because it's so low and degrading. Because it's so low. Ugh. God would not get involved. It's degrading to get involved with the detailed supervision. And by the way, by the way, this is not a far-fetched notion. I would say that most, that many people, I would say most people, if given these two options, would say, God is probably not involved in every detail of what's going on in the world. Right? Does that make sense? Does, do we naturally think, yeah, God's involved in everything that happens. Detailed supervision. How, when, it, when the wind blows... And a leaf blows off the tree. The way it rotates in the air. And how it lands and where it lands. And what it covers. God desires that God also charge that course. Do we all naturally think that that's true? That's called Hashgacha Pratis. That's called divine providence. It's called detailed supervision. That's a Jewish belief. What I'm saying is this, this all, what we don't think, or what others think, etc., this is not so far-fetched. To think that God only is involved in detail with the heavens, with the spiritual realms, but with us, things just happen. I would say most of us, or most, not us, but most people think that. That what happens is chance, nature, whatever you want to call it, that just happened. The tr- God cares how the tree blows. God cares how the leaf falls. 
God has nothing else better to do. That's the same argument. That's what, that's what we're debunking here. Yeah. Where was God? It's only a question, though, if you believe that God is involved. If not, then what's the question? How did the Holocaust happen? Why shouldn't it happen? Think about it. So good, and that's so. As Jews, we're meant to have a question, and God has to come up with an answer. But we have to ask the question. When when bad things happen, we say, God, you are all powerful, you are all knowing, and you are all involved. So where were you? And we ask the question, if we didn't believe in this, if God was only in the heavens, so then what's the question? Why, why the outrage? Why are you turning to God? What did God have to do with it? God is not involved. But God is all powerful. Like you said, isn't God all powerful? Isn't Again, I'm, I'm discussing from two angles here. In other words, the only way that we ask the question is actually come from a place of faith. When somebody says, because of the Holocaust, I can't believe in God, what actually is happening is, they're believing in God. The question is not, I don't believe in God. The question is, because I believe in God, how could God allow it to happen? And the answer, and the answer is, you're right. And I don't know. Well, depending upon your position, those that, believe, those that came out alive believe in God. Not necessarily. No, no. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. A lot of, again, I, I don't want this, I don't want to... Uh, Get completely, because the Holocaust. I mean, that's that's a that's a topic that requires a lot of elaboration. But the one point that I want to bring out is, forget the any any tragedy that happens, right? Any tragedy, misfortune, we whatever happens in our lives and in somebody else's life, right? The fact that we say that we cry out to God and we say, "Why is this happening?" Right? How could God allow this to happen? How do bad things happen to good people? It's coming from the assumption. That God should make it better. Why? Because God is involved and should be involved. So when He doesn't, we're surprised or we're outraged and we question or we say we lose our faith. Again, it's, it comes from a place of faith in a sense. But getting back to this, this point is, what He's saying is, where does idolatry stem from? It stems from a person or from generations of thinking of, you know what, God is not involved in this world. God has so many better things to do. God has... With the spiritual stuff, the more important stuff, maybe. But us, down here, the physical things, God cares when my flowers, if the blizzard hits, if it doesn't hit, really? Right? I'm praying to God for rain. Why? What does God have to do with it? We'll see the clouds. We'll make it happen. Right? What, what does God have to do with it? Again, this is, the, this is the, the notion that leads to idolatry. Okay? Continue, therefore. Therefore, he has empowered the constellations and ministering angels to manage and supervise such affairs according to their wish and whim by the power that which he has invested them. Namely, to supervise with detailed supervision all the specific details attendant to the mundane phenomena that occur upon the physical earth below. And again, this is just continuing the logic. Again, this is the notion that leads to idolatry. The theological no, the theological underpinnings of idolatry, which is, God is too high, God is too holy, God is too spiritual, right? It's like pegging God as a spiritualist, as opposed to a God, right? That spiritual, the angels are not closer to God. Again, it's all the same, same idea. That's, that was the main point I wanted to bring out. It's like a person says, I'm closer to God. So you got to follow me. I'm the king. I'm the ruler. I'm the guru. you got to follow me. Right? It's all the same thing. It's all the hierarchy. Because I'm closer to God. Who's closer to God? Right? The spiritual is closer to God than the physical. God, right? an angel is better than a, than a rock? Who said? 
It's all, if, if God is not infinite, then yeah. In other words, if God exists along a continuum, continuum, if you can if you can define God and say God's up here, so then yeah, relative to relative to up here, there runs in the ladder. But if God is not a, a, a figment of our creation, if God is infinite, if God is truly beyond anything that we know, so then which then who's closer? What's closer to infinite, one or a million? They're equally non. Uh, Relative. I don't know the right words for it. So what's the point? The point of all of this is that the notion has it, right? It follows that. So who runs the world? It's the angels. It's the constellations. Right? It's Wall Street. It's all these people. Who runs the world? It's not about Occupy Chabad. This is... By the way, a great program. I was thinking a great program would have been Occupy the Sukkah. Ah, that's good. All right, we got it next year. Next year. Anyway, the point is that we think that. So, who runs everything? Who runs everything is all the other things. Because God doesn't run, right? Other things run. So then, maybe I should run it. All right, I'll be a guru. I'll run it. I'll run the show. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how to. I'll tell you what to do and what you have to do to be connected. And if you don't, then you're you're going to hell. Right? That's that's how we're that's how we're playing this. Whereas Abraham, and he doesn't finish it off here, Abraham says, and monotheism says, and Judaism says, ah, you got a direct connection to God. You don't need a hierarchy. God is, God is involved with you. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry to ask another one of those like, big questions like the whole cost. <laughs> no, no, go for it. Just connecting the dots. If God is you know, controlling the flutter of every leaf as it falls to the ground, where does free will end in the picture? Ah, oh, doesn't. It's a great question. We don't have free will about that stuff. A hundred percent. This is a major idea, by the way. This is touching on a major idea. According to Judaism and Kabbalah, the only free will we have, choices, moral choices of right and wrong. That's the only free will we have. Where we go on vacation, what happens to us, what stuff we... None of that, all of that is predestined. The only choices we have are the moral decisions. Where we find ourselves, it's all about divine providence. Where we find ourselves, where we wake up in the morning. I, we always say this in the class, right? Where you wake up in the morning is where you're meant to be. What does that mean? It means in a sense you were guided to where you needed to be. So all the choices that you thought you made, you made choices, but you were really led to where you have to be anyway. In other words, we don't have choice over a lot of the things. The things that we have choice over, when you're in now, now you're in this place. You thought you got there because you made the choices, but... Either you did it or you, you would have been there anyway because you have to be there. Now you're faced with a moral choice, right? A good and bad, a good or bad choice. Now that's on you. In other words, the big choices, not the little choices, the big choices. The big choices we make. I think so, yeah. So how does science factor into this whole Science is great. Science is science is tremendously, tremendously powerful. Science figures out how the natural world works. Because God works through the rules of nature. Nature is God as well, working with a rule book. God doesn't just pull miracle mode. Like Madden mode. This fluttering to the ground, scientific explanation would be physically how it Absolutely. Because God works through a process. Because nature, God works through nature, which is a process. It's like the constellations are not true. Of course they're ministering angels, which we'll talk about right now. I want to get into this. Of course they're ministering angels that, that rule certain countries and, and have various astrological signs are associated with various na- nationalities. Absolutely, that's true. But who's running the show even when, that's, even when that flow of energy is happening through that path? It's still God. In other words, the brilliant
science of nature is, of science is to figure out how nature works, to figure out how God is making, how God is running the show through nature. In other words, nature, science, and religion don't have to be contradictory. You understand? When you figure out how biology works, right? How it works, it doesn't mean suddenly. Well, God's out of the picture. Oh, we figure out how it works, and so now uh, God, God operates through that. Nature is divine as well. Hashem is Elohim. Have I Elohim? Yeah. So, if, uh, if predestination guides every decision, not every, except except moral decisions between right and wrong. Right. When at point A, I make a decision between right and wrong. That does move me one way or another. Correct. But that itself was predestined. No. Okay, so so I so everything's predestined to get you to point A. Correct. So now I'm at point A. Now now your decision will have an impact, right? Go left or right, I go right. That wasn't predestined that I would end up right. Correct. Now here I am and where I go on vacation, what job I take, who I marry. It says in the Talmud, we're told who we're, before we're born, it's determined what, where we're going to live, who we're going to marry, how much money we're going to make, all that is determined. But a moral decision Talmud says that, it's not even Kabbalah. A huh? moral yeah. decision within those decisions. That's on us. If, if I'm already married, marrying somebody else would not be, you know, whatever. You know, whatever, the, the, whatever the moral issue is. There's a word for that. <laughs> 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 like, Absolutely, of course. No, that's what I'm saying. In every context, there's, there are moral decisions that come up. Absolutely. I don't want to minimize the choice that we have. We have choices every moment of the day to occupy ourselves when we're driving to work, when we're driving anywhere. What are we listening to? Are we going to study Torah? Are we going to pop in a CD of Torah or listen to something meaningful or, or whatever, study at the red light something, have a book and study, study some Torah? Or are we going to waste time? We always have choices. What I'm saying is, the, the, the stuff that happens, it's almost like the set. It's almost like you're an actor, right? Who said? Uh, Shakespeare said, life is a stage and we're all actors. Right, that's what happened. We're all actors, but what's the part? The part's your speaking part. Don't get caught up in what's happening behind you. Don't get caught up. The sets are moving, the sets are changing. If you get involved, there's a set director. Don't worry about the set. You worry about your choices once you're there on the stage. Now you got a choice. Just so I understand, yeah. I'm driving to work and I decide... I'm, I'm drinking a cup of coffee and I decide to litter, to throw the cup outside the window because I'm done. Yeah. That's a moral decision. That's abusing the environment, right. right. It's a moral decision. That I then get a ticket uh, as a result. I'm stopped, I get a ticket. That was getting the ticket predetermined? <laughs> you won. It's predetermined that you're right now. Now you're getting complicated. Uh, <laughs> Is it predetermined that you're going to get a ticket? That's also true, but that's you. Yeah, but that's that's something else. The question soul. is, like, I, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the idea. Of, it, it says in it says in Tanya that if somebody if somebody insults you, if somebody harms you. So how do you react? How do you react? If you get angry, you're missing the point. So it says in Tanya. If you get angry, and it could be, did you speak about this last week? So if you get angry, you're missing the point. Because it was meant to happen to you. Does that justify that the person did it? Of course not. There's, they're not gonna have, they made the moral decision. They have to face the music for their own selves, to God, whatever. And to you, restitution, whatever it is. 
But for you, it was meant to happen. So you were meant to get the ticket. I guess you were meant to get the ticket. Did, does God compel the ticket writer? Did he have the, the officer have free choice to write it? I don't know. But I had a choice not to litter. Of course. But once I litter, I get the ticket. There's yeah, there's I mean, The idea is that their consequences are born of your choices. Is it possible you won't get caught? It's possible. But everything's predetermined by Hashem? I mean, you're talking about predeterminism. So, by who, by what? Yeah, by God. We don't believe in other for- yeah, no other forces. This is pure monotheism. What I think I'm hearing is that you're saying that if everything is predetermined... Not everything. Okay. <laughs> Not everything. So, but everything has a domino effect. And we don't have the big picture. God has, is the only one with the big picture. That's right. And if we follow the blueprint of His laws, mm-hmm. we get closer right, to understanding the big picture. Or not. <laughs> Sometimes when we mess up, we were meant to be there. Or now that we're in that place, we're meant to do something positive in that place. Because that's part of the learning process of right. the big picture that God knows. In order for us to get there, we have to make these mistakes to keep growing. Absolutely. To get to that Does that mean that in the mistake we should feel happy about it? No, because then we're never going to grow from it. You see the paradox? If we're happy with the mistake, because I was meant to make the mistake, then you're never going to grow from it, because then you're not feeling the, the, the energy from the mistake. So every time you turn left when you're supposed to turn right, you have to get, recorrect your course. Only because you realize that it was a left turn instead of a right turn. But what if you don't think you've made a mistake? There are people who have no yeah. conscience, and they don't ever... That's, that's, that's another story. I mean, you're talking about people that have no conscience, and people... Don't grow from Good. Uh, everyone's everyone's got a. Th- so look, okay. Let, let's. I, I want to. Let's do another few. Another few. Um, a very quick thing. Two more paragraphs. Two more paragraphs. God by proxy. Okay. Uh, Maria. Masha. God by yeah. proxy. Literally two more paragraphs. All right. This is the meaning of but the earth he gave to the children of man and the concept of God being God. Of God. <laughs> The gods referred to our administering angels in the constellations to which, according to the idolaters, erroneous thinking are the providers of spiritual influence to the world and its inhabitants. For this reason, the idolaters worship them. I don't know why he writes spiritual influence. But whatever. Anyway, what he's saying, right? You see what I'm saying with the spiritual? Huh? Yeah. It's they provide influence to the world. I don't know why spiritual influence. They're providing actual influence to the world. Anyway, what he says over here is, again, he's just, he's just kind of rounding out the discussion. The heavens are for God, but the earth he gives to man. In other words, the earth is run by other forces, not Hashem. This is what the mistake is. This is the erroneous thought. And that's why God can be called God of gods. What's the reason God of gods? Not that God doesn't, not that Hashem doesn't exist, but yeah, there are other gods as well. God of gods means that, yeah, the, there's, there's the, the CEO ultimately, but along the way, there are other gods, right? And so God, Hashem is the God of gods, but there are other gods. And those other gods, those other, quote, lowercase gods, those other powers, they have power. They provide influence to the world and its inhabitants, and therefore it's worth it to, it's, 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 it's Kedai, it makes sense to worship them, because they also have power. For example, this is a critical idea. For example, in the land of Greece, which receives its vitality through the constellation Virgo, women often serve as heads of state and would defy since uh, to the idolaters thinking those women were the embodiment of those gods who were providing the flow of vitality to 
And in order to understand this, we have to read a few footnotes. 39. Okay? This is critical. Yavan. The biblical name for Greece is sometimes used to refer to the Hellenistic culture generally rather than to Greece specifically. The Ptolemaic... Queens of Hellenistic Egypt often co-ruled with their husbands, who were also their brothers. <coughs> Berenice the third and Berenice the fourth were the sole heads of state. Cleopatra the fifth co-ruled with her daughter Berenice the fourth for a year before her death. Cleopatra the seventh co-ruled with several husbands, but effectively ruled the empire alone. His point here is in the footnote is to explain that when we say Yavan, by the way, Yavan is amazing. Oh, so many. Anyway, when we say Yavan, which is translated in the inside as Greece and also in Hebrew, which is translated as Greece, doesn't necessarily mean Greece. It means those that were under the influence of Hellenistic culture, which include ancient Egypt, which were all, which was which was run in many times by women. Why? So it says in the next footnote, footnote forty. I'm going to get back to Yavan in a second in the Hebrew. Footnote forty. It has been said in the books of wisdom. This is from Rabbeinu Bachia. The lands of Yishmael. Ishmael received their vitality through the constellation Scorpio, Persia through the constellation Sag- Sagittarius, the Philistines through Capricorn and Edom through Virgo or Libra. So we have various uh, constellations associated with different lands. This is a very important topic which we don't have time to fully develop today. The idea is that, that various nations, various regions in the world, right, various spaces are aligned under certain astrono- astrological signs. You know, certain stars, certain constellations are aligned with certain lands, certain areas of the world. And therefore, the the lands itself draw their energy through certain constellations. That is true. Judaism says it's true. Absolutely true. The question is, do you then serve the star? Do you serve the constellation? It's coming through there, but do you serve it? Or is it God working through the constellations? Where is it coming from? It comes through, right? It's like the example I gave back when we discussed this in Overcoming Folly. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. It's your birthday. And you get a check in the mail from, uh, from a friend, from, uh, you know, your kid away in school, whatever. You get a check from your parents, right? And so the mailman gives you the, check, gives you the envelope. You say, do you, do you tell the, the, mail, the mailman, the post uh, deliverer, the ma- thank you for the check, you can say thank you for delivering the check, but you don't say thank you for the check. Right? Because they didn't write the check. So to, to, to be mistaken, to think, well, my vitality, my, my energy, my life force, which is coming through Libra, Virgo, whatever. It's, so thank you, Virgo. You're the woman. Thank you, Virgo. To say that is to, is, to be, is to be off base. So he says in the inside that that's why in these countries, in that country specifically Greece or the Greek influence, uh, like Egypt countries, so they deified women, heads of state. Why? Because they felt that if they put a woman in charge and they serve her as a physical embodiment of the spiritual thing, they'll be getting more influence, they'll be getting more blessing, they'll, they'll be hooked up. So that was part of, the, it's part of the issue. And the point is, all of this, everything that we've discussed in the inside, not everything outside, but everything inside, it's all part of the error. It's not the, it's not the truth. It's all part of the error. The error is believing, mistakenly, that the vitality, that God is not involved, and that it's coming from other places. That's what idolatry is, and that's a big mistake. What the danger is, we talked about. Where it comes from, we talked about. We rounded out the discussion. I hope it makes sense now. I want to make, I want to make a reference to Yavan. Yavan is Greece. In Hebrew, if you look at the word Yavan, it's comprised of three letters. What are they? How do you draw them? Look, look at the Hebrew word. What do you see? Starting from right to left. 
goes lower and lower. This is, it says that this, the Hellenistic culture and society, it's all little by little, and this, we can trace it also with this idolatry. It starts off with a little deviation, and then it gets a little bit more until it's below the line with the langanum, with the, fi- with the final nun. In other words, no, it's, that's how, how did idolatry begin? My mind says they made a mistake, and then they further said a bigger mistake, and then a bigger mistake, until before you know it, everyone forgets about God. In other words, and this is also the Talmud says, how does the Yetzirah work? Today he says, do this. Not forbidden, he says, do this. A little, a little thing. And then tomorrow he says, do that. Until eventually he says, serve idols. In other words, it doesn't happen right away. We don't fall into the pit right away. It's the Yavan. It's a little bit, a little bit more, and then boom, before you know, you're below the line. I say below the line because a long uh, final noon, you draw below, like if you're drawing on a ruled paper, you draw below the line. Yavan, Greece. But it refers colloquially to the general thing. Right, that, this ends our discussion for today. Next week we're going to pick it up with the constellations, with the nations, with the land of Israel. Okay, we're going to talk about Israel, how Israel differs from all of this. Because Israel, okay, we'll talk about that. And also, and also we're going to try to get into... One second, one second. We're also going to try to break into chapter 3 and further discussion of... And again, this is a brilliant thing. In order to understand, I, I always say this. If you have the answer before the question, what do you have? If you have the answer before the question, what do you have? No, you have nothing. Because your answer is not an answer. If the question is not a question, the answer is not an answer. Right? If you get, if you get a big idea... And you know, it was never bothering you, so what's the idea? You're going to discard it. It's not going to mean anything. If you've been bothered by something, and then you get the answer, it's life-changing. So the, the reason why we're developing idolatry so intensely, where does it come from? How does it metamorph? How does it... What's, ter- what's what the whole energy about it is in order to really get into that space of idolatry and understand why it is that the feminine condition or the, fe- the, the, the feminine energy is more conditioned to withstanding the temptation, to knowing the truth, why the masculine condition is more susceptible to falling into this mistake, and then how we can proceed from there. That's it for today. Thank you all for coming. A few very important...